0: I am really looking forward to that old Orchid Christmas Eve service. I, I got the idea because last year, pumpkin killing was the biggest one that we, that we had. And like the community came out for it. And I thought, what if we were able to do something like that for Christmas Eve? And this year, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. Most people have Christmas Day the following Monday, off. And that's why we're doing it. Like we're trying to close it down at five. So people who have like Christmas Eve dinners can still make it. We don't have to get portable lights out there. And people come and they, they hang out and get to go home after. It's just, it's going to be great. <sighs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> we could tr- totally Charlie Brown this thing, but we don't know. But we're going we're gonna to go for it. <laughs> All right, so I have a couple things to tell you about. The first one is I mentioned this last week that trivia, our last one for the year, which is actually just our second one for the year, but the last one for the year is on September 15th. That is a Friday. And I know if you've come to trivia before, we're like, we get a food truck out there and you're like, I wait forever for my food and halfway, I don't even get to answer the questions, but halfway through trivia. So this year, or this time, we got two food trucks, two, okay, one is oak and smoke, favor, oh, okay, <laughs> something new, they got, they got brisket quesadillas, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm looking for, that sound right there, uh, and we also have Danny's Pizza, which is doing wood-fired pizzas, oh, some, oh, there you go, okay, someone knows that, and, and, just learning from all of our mistakes, they have pagers, So you order your food, they hand you a pager, you don't have to stand there waiting. You go and you sit down, you get involved in trivia, you go get your food and bring it back to your table. You're welcome. So sign up for trivia. If, if that just sounds like a nightmare to you, like trivia and hanging out and talking to people and having fun, what we really need is also people to help watch kids. So... So if you're like I don't like people. Kids aren't people apparently. They're <laughs> they're, they're They're just hang out with these small children. You don't ha- you're just going to hopefully have fun with them if it's like I can't interact with people my own age. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Sign up for childcare. We really do need help because a lot of parents with they come to trivia and it's it's a nice kind of way to not, I don't want to say getaway. It just sounds terrible. I, everything I say sounds bad, but not really. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. What we are going to do is doors will open at 5. We're going to do a kids' round at 5.30. Then we'll send all the kids to their classes, and the adult round starts at 6. We do our best to get you out of there or end at 7.30. So that's kind of the evening if you're looking for what times to come in and out. That's a great announcement. second announcement I have is baptisms are on September 10th. And if you would like to get baptized, uh, there is still an opportunity. Just let them know at the Welcome Center. We'll get a hold of you, walk you through that. For the rest of you who are not getting baptized, put it on your calendars. September 10th, it's a Sunday. We moved it off of Labor Day weekend this year because a lot of people asked us in previous years to not do it on Labor Day weekend because they're out of town. So we moved it to the following week. So put that on your calendar. It's going to be great and we just hope a tropical storm hurricane is not flying through our area at the time. It'll be great. Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes. Oh, I'm sorry, Donald. He hates it when I walk off the live stream camera thing when I do this. Um, but... Uh, We have these binders outside, and each week I tell you, do not feel like you have to take a binder. The binders have supplemental information that you can put every week into them. And I'm going to talk about what the supplemental information is during the message. But the sermon notes we have on the communion tables this week, they look like this. And what you get is a series of three types of questions and then action steps. So you have this vertical, it's like, what is God doing? And then this eternal, internal, so what is God doing in me? And then horizontal, what is God calling me to do outside of myself? And then the action steps that are in there. On the left hand side, you're gonna get the verses we're going through, a place for notes, and on the right hand side, a little bit of recap of what we'll talk about today. You can grab one of those. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device. You will get sermon notes versus questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Proverbs 24, verse 29, and it says, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who understand the difference between vengeance and justice and that we would be those who respond the way that we do because you have first given grace and mercy to us. That how we interact with those around us would come because we understand what you have first done. So we would seek justice while we are living in the midst of love and forgiveness. Amen. Have a seat. Alright, so we are doing this series through this New Testament concept of forgiving or forgiveness. It is a subject that anybody who's gone to any church for any length of time have probably heard about, but I don't think we practice it as much because we don't really understand it. And I think that's true because of some of the conversations I have had during this series. Hearing about something over and over doesn't make you experts. Like, think about government debt right hear about it all the time and it seems like nobody understands it 30 trillion dollars that's not a big deal that's a big deal okay so there's there's an issue only by seeing something and living something out practically does it become real And studies actually bear this out. I can many times, hopefully logically, lay out to you how the Bible speaks about grace, the triune view of God, the reliability of the scriptures. And most Christians will affirm those things. But when asked to explain them, we get tongue tied or brain tied around them. And not until you end up in a situation where you need that knowledge uh, Job's Witness or a Mormon at, at your front door and they tie you in a theological pretzel, do you, does the truth start to sink in? Do you start to be like, oh, this is the answer to that question? And you start to then retain it. And so this series is a way for us to talk about the biblical reality of forgiveness and what it does. And I fully realize not all of us none of us are going to remember everything that we talk about during this series, and that's okay. But what I hope is when you are in a place and you need to understand forgiveness and what it means, you'll be able to go back to this series. It'll be online, unless the conspiracy theorists are right and the government shuts us all down, but go back to this series and it will help you maybe to understand better what real forgiveness is as you live that out practically. So in this series, we're essentially walking through Tim Keller's book, Called Forgive. I am freely plagiarizing all the good bits, which is most of it. Uh, A lack of forgiveness with one another leads to broken relationships. It's really antithetical to what the gospel calls us to. And I keep telling you this I know it is summer. You're in and out and in and out. But if you miss a week, please go back and get the podcast and listen to it on your way to work, on the way home, cleaning the backyard yelling at the kids, whatever it is, just, you know, put it on and listen or watch the YouTube video uh, that we have every single one of these on our channel. You can go back and watch, but stay up to date because they're all going to connect to one another just like this week. This week is going to connect directly to last week. It will sit on its own if you only here for this week. That's okay. But it really does connect with last week. Last week, we talked about this idea of love and fury. And this week, we're going to talk about justice and love. Love and fury points out how our sin destroys us, and it destroys the world that God made. And if God truly loves us and the world that He made, He will have anger against our sin. So it must be dealt with. And that leads to justice. But God's justice comes out of his love. And so we talked about last week how the cross, God's wrath against sin and his love for us both shine through at the cross. And if we don't grasp this concept that we call the substitutionary atonement of Jesus in our place, we will not understand really what forgiveness is or what God calls us into. Many times I think we end up being like spoiled children. So here's the question. How do we assess if we begin to understand fully God's love and fury at the cross? So I'm going to reflect on last week. And I got two questions for you in this. Number one is this. When we see our sins more clearly than we ever wanted to see them or admit that we have them because a lot of people say well I just don't have any sins right and we we admit them and see them does it move us towards God or away from God does it make us want to run towards him or run away from him if realizing our sin makes us want to stay away from God or prayer church lightning would strike me if I stepped inside the doors it shows we don't understand what Jesus really did for us if we understand what Jesus did, we would see that when we see our weaknesses, when we see our feelings, when we see our sin, it would make us want to run into His arms because there's no other place we could really grow. And we want to be closer to Him. A lot of people struggle with feelings of inadequacy or shame Like your inner voice is always going, you know, you're an idiot, you're a failure, no one really likes you, no one really loves you. But if we truly understand the cross and rejoice in what Jesus did for us on the cross, you can say to that voice, you know what, even if I hadn't done that thing I feel guilty about, it still wouldn't make me righteous in God's sight. Only Jesus can do that, and He has done that at infinite cost to Himself if we have a god who is nothing but wrath and no understanding of what jesus did on the cross we're going to try really hard to be good but we're always going to feel like we will just never measure up we're always going to be unworthy and we will run away because of our sin but if we understand the love of god it draws us to him only love can awaken and grow more love now here's the second question do you then view god as remote or distant like god doesn't care at all now Today, people think that we have an enlightened view of God, meaning they either don't believe in God or they do believe in God, but He's just like a supportive spirit of love, that He's an assistant to whatever you want to do. He's your gopher. I'm going to rub God's belly, money, money, money. Give me whatever I want, God, so I can go get the things that make me happy. And we think we can do whatever we really want. We look at the parts of the Bible that we disagree with and say, well, that's not relevant for today. I don't have to believe that. So you live in America and... And you've probably seen kids raised with parents who are completely absent and not uninvolved. Or more likely today, you see parents who kind of let their kids do anything they want to do. They never cross them because they want their kids to be their buddies. They never discipline them. And in the short run, kids love that. They get to do whatever they want, but eventually they begin to feel like orphans. And they begin to act out because they are essentially orphans. And the irony is that parents who never set down rules or disappoint their children, in the end, are failing to love them. Children that grow up like that, studies are now showing they have this emotional vertigo. They don't know how to interact in relationships, and it follows them the rest of their lives. They don't know where the limits are. They don't know where the boundaries are. They have a hard time even holding jobs. Because imagine you get your first job, and they're like, go make french fries. I don't want to make French fries. Go make French fries. You can't tell me to make French fries. Ah! You're fired. Thank you. I'll go home. My parents will make French fries for me. That, that's, that's the thing, right? When it, You know, you know, when it comes to God, a lot of people are like this. They say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And so they want a God that doesn't condemn anything. And so they'll look to my career success, uh, my relationships, uh, sex for, for affirmation, for confirmation that I'm okay. But it's temporary and it never lasts and it doesn't satisfy. When we understand and rejoice in what Jesus did for us on the cross, then we can be free from guilt. We get to be free from shame. We get to be free from all the things that simply moralistic religions bring. And yet we can still feel bound to live in a way that pleases the one who died for us. One writer says this, such obedience is not a burden, but a delight. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you, uh, this is Janet Bornson. This is her Forgive video. And it's really interesting because she'll say this thing in the, in the end of it. Well, she, she'll say, technically, you know, God has forgiven me. And then it's like, technically, and she goes, yeah, I know it's true, but it's hard to get that to hear. And so I'd, I'd want you to see, her. It's, it's really great. So this is Janet's video.
1: This is like not a story about... Me needing to forgive somebody, but me asking somebody else like for forgiveness. Um, I had a roommate when I was in graduate school. I would say overall, for the most part, we had a really good relationship. I had a lot of like really complicated feelings though, like about her, because we were in grad school together and in the same program. Like it was really jealous of her. It was like very competitive of her. Um, she kind of made me very anxious to be around, and I would say that I was never like outright mean to her, like there was never, like an event I could point to where we had like a really blow up fight or whatever. But I would definitely say I was not very nice to her. And I would say that she really felt how like anxious I was to be around her. And I kind of like started to avoid her. I knew that she was hurt by that. And I felt guilty because, for lots of reasons, because I knew that I wasn't being very nice. I knew that I wasn't being healthy about how I was handling my emotions. And I also knew that she knew that I was a Christian and I did not think I was a very good witness of Christ and what that meant. One of the reasons I decided to actually ask her to go to lunch and kind of like apologize to her was after going through redemption groups like last spring. Like a big idol for me for a, like, a pretty decent part of my adult life has been like my work in finding identity and work and feeling kind of like satisfaction and being like in like getting publications and kind of using that as like a metric for kind of my own like self-worth and like in who I am and kind of being like, okay, I can kind of feel like, okay, about myself because I'm doing X, Y, and Z, which really came out, I think in redemption groups as part of thinking about these like idols. We were at a conference last fall and I actually had lunch with her and I was like, I know this is seven years too late, but I just wanted to say that I was not very nice to you and I'm really sorry. Kind of part of me just wanted to kind of like leave the relationship alone and like not have to think about it again and just kind of like, just go on with my life, but I felt really compelled to apologize to her. And also as part of that process was me also kind of trying to forgive myself for how I acted and how I was with her. I look back at all of that and just think about how much regret I have. A big part of why I was trying to avoid like talking to her about it was kind of this like I kind of wanted to avoid having to think about it in terms of myself. I have asked God for forgiveness. And theoretically, I believe he has forgiven me.
0: Theoretically,
1: Because there's I feel like that theoretically, because I still struggle with kind of believing those things. And then there's a big part that's like, I struggle to forgive myself. I kind of think back to these kind of things and like other things in my life and all I can do is just kind of be like, I can't believe I did that, I can't believe I did that. And like, But something that I'm trying to remember is that it's, it's not so much, it's not as important like whether I forgive myself, but kind of like realizing and knowing that God has forgiven me. It sounds good to say that. <laughs> Feel like that's the right answer. If my identity is in God, then kind of like how He sees me should shape who I see myself, rather than like how I see myself.
0: So this is why we say a good grasp of what Jesus did on the cross, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, can prevent this spiritual distortion. Because only a proper understanding of that doctrine keeps us from thinking that God is mainly holy with a little bit of love stuck in or mainly loving with a little bit of holiness stuck in. Only with a proper view of God do we get to a place of understanding forgiveness, having equal weight of justice and mercy, which leads today to where we are going. We're going to talk about justice and love. And a lot of you have been asking the question, when do we get to the place of talking about what justice looks like in the midst of this? Well, that's today. Uh, despite, you know, the clear and unyielding righteousness of God, the Old Testament constantly shows a God who shows Him to be a God who is forgiving. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, it says that God will in no way treat the guilty as if they were innocent. And since we are guilty, what then do we have? Do we have a loving God who forgives the guilty or a just God who punishes the guilty? And the answer to that question is both. We, We have both. How is that possible? The answer, again, is seen at the cross. God is both a God of love and fury and a God of justice and love. It's like love is the bread on the sandwich. Everything else goes in the middle of that. And at the cross, we see how these are not in conflict, but they work together to save the world. And so today we're going to talk about justice or revenge or actually more love and not revenge. And so I told you a couple weeks ago that in most ancient societies that were these shame and honor cultures, they're not based on equal human dignity and value, but a hierarchy, their honor and social status. But what I didn't tell you is in those cultures, you would take vengeance upon somebody who hurt you or wronged you in order to maintain honor. And if you didn't take revenge, you were not worthy of respect. And in that type of culture, neither justice nor or love were important. If you had calculations for penalties, many times they would just go out the window in order to satisfy your honor. Now, I do understand this a little bit because I was a youth pastor for years, and I had this motto for kids, and it was swift, total, and excessive retribution. Okay, especially if I'm sleeping, you do not mess with me. And kids had this spirit. I probably would go to jail today for you know. It's, this is why I'm not a youth minister anymore. Okay, just saying. Now. It's what's important to notice is this is how a lot of ancient societies and even our society today is continuing to act. It's not love those who wrong you. I mean, that's what happens in a Christian culture, but a pre-Christian culture, no way. Even the Stoics would counsel people, you don't take revenge, and not showing your emotions, but the reasoning is the way you overcome bitterness and not to pay somebody back was simply to despise wrongdoers, to think of them as less than you, as a way to punish them. It's not, it was resignation, it's not forgiveness. Anger is diminished by not doing justice or love, but by detaching your heart. And that is not how the scriptures call us to, into love and forgiveness and justice and mercy. But I, don't raise your hands, but do you ever do that? Instead of dealing with an issue with somebody, you just kind of ghost them? I'm just going to talk to you. I'm not going to deal with it. Again, don't raise your hands because you probably all raise your hands. The Bible flies in the face of pagan society and our society by telling us the most honorable thing is not to be, always be so worried about your honor. The book of Proverbs tells us that the quickest to strike back is usually the most foolish. Proverbs 20 verse 3 says, It is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. The teaching about foolishness in the Old Testament and biblical wisdom literature, it says that fools are destructively self-regarding. They're always looking at themselves because of an inner emptiness, an inner insecurity. Those who are quickest to angrily defend themselves, not just defend yourself, but angrily defend yourself, show themselves to be the weakest. You looking at me? You want to be looking at me? You want to step outside? That's the weakest. Proverbs 29, verse 23, pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. It's saying that the strongest do not lash out in anger, but proceed with self-control. They do both justice and love because that is what comes out of real forgiveness. Now, I was going to have you turn to Leviticus 19. I'm not going to do that. I want you just to listen to the words when I read them to you. Because the Hebrew scriptures show a picture of God who is infinitely greater than us, and yet he has a Patience with people who have wronged him. You go back to Genesis 3 and you see that where God says, You eat this fruit, you die. They don't die physically. God offers them grace. Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, this is what God says. Just listen to this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this shows how God intends for his covenant people to interact and conduct themselves when one person has wronged another. And we know this because Jesus repeats this and then he expands this. And there's three things here that are forbidden. Number one is this, seeking revenge, paying someone back. You did this to me, so I will do that to you. Second thing, hating the person in your heart. Now, a lot of people say, I don't hate anybody in my heart. Well, this word hate here, the Hebrew word literally means to decrease status, to hold somebody in contempt as lesser than. That's what it means. And I think a whole lot of us end up being there a lot of times. The third thing is bearing grudges. Now, you got to be honest about this, right? Because when someone hurts you or something happens in your life, negative feelings pop up. They just happen. But what it's really saying is when those negative feelings are unavoidable, do your best not to sustain those over time. And then there are two things that believers in conflict must do. Number one is it says reason frankly with your neighbor. Other versions will use the word rebuke. And that means rebuke is to pointedly show the other person their error. And the text adds, lest you incur sin because of him. The NIV will say it like this, so you will not share in their guilt. What it is doing is it's indicating that we have a responsibility. When somebody does something in our lives that is hurtful or could hurt other people, that we have to seek out to get them to stop that behavior. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Israel was intended to live in community. So it's not like you're the only one who has to go and do this. We can do that in community. But God says there is a responsibility we have. And if we fail to confront them and seek to stop that abuse in their behavior, there's a responsibility there. Even if we are the victims in the first place, we are called to pursue justice where it is called for. And this command not to hold a grudge is also a command to forgive as we seek justice, not letting justice go by the wayside. The second thing that we are called to do is love. And love is like another problem. Like in our culture, we hear the word forgive. We think it means letting everything go. And love, we think, oh, it's opening my arms, come back into my house, hurt me some more. Oh, please, punch me. That's not what love means. Love means you don't despise somebody as you are seeking justice. It means we live this truth. And as a really nuanced approach to forgiveness with justice and love. We are to forgive and confront wrongdoers about their sin. Again, we can do that in community, justice and love. So why do we do this? Well, Leviticus 19, verse 18, God says, because I'm the Lord. That's why. Justice and love must be combined in us because they are combined in God himself. Proverbs 24, verse 29, the verse I had you stand for says, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. If we do not combine love and justice in our dealings with others, we will ultimately do neither of them. One of the best lines in the Forgive book says this, the heart dresses vengeance up as if it were justice. Do you hear that? The heart dresses vengeance up as if it were justice. Justice. Your angry heart may say, I'm only going to hurt them as much as they hurt me. But you typically want to hurt them just a little bit more. And then it becomes, they did it first. They deserve this thing. So here's the reality of what the scriptures show us. It is not enough to forgive perpetrators. We must also point out the injustice they have done. And secondly, it's not just enough to seek justice. If we don't forgive, we will go beyond justice and into vengeance and never be free from what the other person has done to us. Henry Nowen writes this, By not forgiving, I chain myself to a desire to get even, thereby losing my freedom. A forgiven person forgives. This is what we proclaim when we pray and forgive as our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. This lifelong struggle lies at the heart of the Christian faith. So let me give you a pointed example this morning. Now, when I give you this example, this is an extreme. Okay, I'm, I'm sure many of you haven't gone to this extreme, but many times extremes are, are good to understand a point. So, in the Forgive book, they recount much of Rachel Den Hollander's story. Now, Den Hollander is a former gymnast who was sexually assaulted multiple times by USA Gymnastics physician Larry Nasser. 2018, she breaks through the USA Gymnastics wall of denial, and she is the first person to publicly accuse him. Now, she gets all kinds of blowback, all kinds of denial, lawsuits coming at her. But eventually, she keeps going forward. She allows her name to go out there and say, this is what happened. And by the end of this process, hundreds of women came forward and said, this is what Larry Nassar did to us. Now, in that, Din Hollander, she kind of recounts her whole story of what this looks like. And Rachel Din Hollander, she is a Christian. And she says she is saddened by how often she saw these stories of abuse that people just kept quiet. She said she often saw churches routinely mishandling sexual assault allegations, counseling victims to forgive and forget, and even, many victims alleged, interfering with or being negative towards criminal investigations. Now, I talked about this the first couple weeks in this series, and it's why people become jaded by churches and how we talk about forgiveness that really doesn't look like real biblical forgiveness. Many churches teach concepts like unity and forgiveness and grace, which are great concepts. Okay? We should talk about these because they are wonderful. But sometimes when they do that, we think that forgiven means the victim is silenced and the perpetrators are the ones who keep doing it. And if the victim speaks out, they're characterized as being bitter. And honestly, this kind of behavior has led many victims and advocates to reject forgiveness and even many times blame the church and Christian doctrine of the atonement itself on why forgiveness isn't seen correctly. So this is why I keep telling you, if we misunderstand the teaching that Jesus died on the cross to satisfy God's divine wrath against sin, which we've been talking about, it is argued that that itself is child abuse, that God You know, has abuse against his son. This is where an understanding of the triune nature of God comes in. There is this doctrine, and we call it simplicity. The simplicity of God means that God himself, in his triune nature, has one will. One will. Jesus was not forced to go to the cross. Jesus willingly died to save us. Many abuse victims and advocates have turned away from traditional religion and Christianity, though, in order to fight oppression. Din Hollander does not. In her own book, What Is a Girl Worth? And if you guys want to read her whole story about what this looks like, you can pick up that book. She writes this. I did want to forgive Larry, but I didn't want my forgiveness to be used as an excuse to act as if something terrible wasn't really that bad. She had prominent Christian teachers, even people in her own church, imply that she hadn't really forgiven Larry until she was thankful for the evil that was done to you. She says, you know, I I couldn't believe this. It's, it's this whole picture, and if you have ever thought that, that is not how the Bible speaks about forgiveness, okay? It, it, it is not. See, she says she thought about removing God from the picture in all this, and she goes, but that's never going to fix the problem, because if truth and right and wrong are established by people, There is no way to define what true evil actually is. If you run after your own truth, who's to say that one person's truth isn't more valuable than another? Who's to say Larry Nassar's truth isn't more valuable than Den Hollander's truth? Removing God from the problem doesn't fix the evil. It makes it worse. She even said that Larry Nassar himself became a reason for her to remain a Christian. She says this, Every other religion outside of Christianity relied on some form of doing enough good things to outweigh the bad, as if life were just a balancing scale, and the damage from evil would go away if someone did enough charity work, said the right prayers, and took enough pilgrimages. She goes, but that's not justice. It's not. So what happens is, Rachel and her husband, they write this white paper to the Evangelical Theological Society. And this is what it's called, Justice, the Foundation of a Christian Approach to Abuse. And that is your supplemental resource today. So if you want to grab one, it's in the back, it's outside, this goes into your binders. If you don't want the seven pages, <laughs> that it is, uh, you can also scan the QR link that's out there. If you are someone that's like, I don't really like to read, well, you can scan that right there. If you're like, I don't like to read. Uh, we are having somebody record that today, and we'll put it out as a supplemental podcast. They're going to read through this for you if you just want to be able to listen to it. But it's very good. And in this, they lay out the understanding that a lot of times people in churches who are abused, it's not that churches let it go because of corruption. More often, the church mishandled these situations. They say, as a result of poor theology and misinformation about dynamics, the dynamics of abuse. And so to remedy this poor theology... Well, you know what they point to? The classic doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's what they point towards. How on the cross, Jesus takes the penalty for our sins so we could forgive and then seek justice. So these are the four things they say in this article. Number one, a victim's sense of injustice and desire for vindication is upheld at the cross. Injustice and unrighteousness are real, and God hates them. So they Quote uh, Fleming Rutledge, who says, It makes many people queasy nowadays to talk about the wrath of God, but there can be no turning away from this prominent biblical theme. Oppressed peoples around the world have been empowered by the scriptural picture of a God who is angered by injustice and unrighteousness. It is at the cross that we see sin and evil. They are not trivial things. They are not. The cross shows God's commitment to justice then Hollanders argue that that means we should pursue justice on earth, even though justice in this world is always going to disappoint just a little bit. They write this, Under the worst circumstances, courts are an instrument of perpetuating injustice. And even under the best outcomes, it fails to achieve the restoration of what was damaged or broken. But our confidence can rest in the perfect justice of God. Second thing they say is this. The cross shows that God is committed to both justice and forgiveness. There's no pitting of one against the other. Their actual line is an affirmation of justice is necessary to accurately reflect God's own righteousness. So when Jesus dies on the cross, justice was done on sin and the door to forgiveness becomes open. And what happens in that is God couples His forgiveness with the satisfaction of the requirements for justice. And a proper understanding of the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God is reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, is what we need to understand. On the cross, we see the self-substitution of God in our place. At the cross, they write, The reality of evil and the need for justice is upheld. The divine punishment will be meted out on the individual who has done the wrong or is taken up by God upon himself. The third thing they say is, the example of God at the cross inverts power dynamics at play in oppression and abuse. And what they mean by that is abusers are frequently individuals who are perceived as safe and trustworthy. They manipulate things to put themselves in that position. And so you have concepts of trust and safety and security and love and compassion. They all end up being twisted by perpetrators and wielded like weapons to facilitate violations at the deepest level. Every single concept that we as humans rely upon in order to have relationships with one another becomes distorted and unsafe. And failure to recognize harmful abuse and manipulation of power can lead people to re-enter over and over these abusive relationships. So what can the cross do? Well, the cross stands in stark opposition to the behavior of an abuser. The cross shows us the ultimate example of each of the things that abuse destroys. At the cross, first off, the Son sets aside His divinity. Jesus comes in humility. God comes in flesh to rescue and save us. The second thing is at the cross, God acts for others. We talked about a few weeks ago this other-regarding ethic. God acts for others to overcome evil, uphold justice, free the enslaved, restore creation. Third thing, at the cross, God himself perfectly identifies with the victim because he himself willingly subjected himself to injustice. The cross is the ultimate repudiation of the idea that power is to be wielded for the benefit and pleasure of those who possess it. Only in the cross do victims have the framework and foundation for beginning to properly define and understand concepts which are twisted and manipulated during abuse. The fourth thing they say is this. Forgiveness does not undermine the demands of justice, but it is consistent with them. It's consistent with them. The cross helps Christians, in their words, refrain from viewing criminals and abusers as others or fundamentally different from ourselves, for evil lies in all of our hearts as well. The best chance any perpetrator ever has to see their sin and self-deception into change is if they are confronted with the consequences. That's why justice must be done. The temporary nature of human justice is simply a small picture of the final picture of God's final justice. It it presents abusers, though, an opportunity to come face to face with the reality and the severity of their sin and what they've done. It is really a call for abusers to repent. And when they repent, that means you are siding with God and their victim to condemn the evil they have perpetrated. And here's the thing. Truly repentant abusers who have come to side with God and their victims do not use their repentance as an excuse to escape human justice or to make demands of their victims. Because sometimes, oh, I repented. You should let me into your life. Oh, I repented. You should this. Oh, I repented. That is still abuse. That is still manipulation. True repentance involves acknowledging the harm that they have done and the rightness of punishment. Both. In the courtroom... Dan Hollander looks at Larry Nasser and she says this I pray you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt. Ooh, why? She says, so that you someday may experience true repentance and forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Ooh, yeah, right? There are two ways. Ah, something happened yesterday. It's really. Hits close to home. So anyway, uh, there are only two ways to live our lives, vengeance or love. In vengeance, we can try to satisfy our anger and desire to get the wrongdoer to suffer. But that only serves to harden our hearts towards other people, towards even ourselves, towards God. And so we're only hurting ourselves in the future. And what it really does, vengeance, is it continues to allow a perpetrator to have control in our lives. The second way we can respond, though, is out of love, and it means part of our job is to help perpetrators see their wrongdoing. In the book of Galatians, we just finished, right? Galatians 6.1 says we do these things out of love. Well, bringing about justice is out of love for the perpetrator, for the human community God has placed us in, for love for God himself. The only way it's possible for us to forgive as, as we are seeking justice We understand that love, and it leads us to proper forgiveness. And that love can come on the other side of an arrest, on the other side of a courtroom. And that can be real love. But one thing is important for us to understand. Christians seeking justice must be guided by the cross. We must be. We know that God has not given us what we deserve. In Jesus, we have received the full penalty. He, He received the full penalty for our own sins. The punishment we deserve for the sin in our lives falls upon Him. His perfect life is then credited to us and that is the classic understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith and not by works. On the one side, we see God upholds justice. He upholds justice. He does not ignore our sin. God does not say, oh, it's okay, we'll just wink and and let it go away. He takes justice seriously enough that Jesus takes on human nature, lived the life of a servant, dies on the cross, paying for justice himself. This is why we are to be passionate About justice and yet the doctrine of justification also reminds us that we have done wrong we are not sinless either and that we are perpetrators of injustice whom God has also forgiven and that enables us to go out into the world not with a condescending attitude towards the unjust but in a way that we can now start to pursue justice tirelessly because of the cross and this is why we keep coming back to the understanding of the cross is what enables us to live out in this world with love and anger at sin and justice and love. That it's all bookended by this understanding of God's great love for us. Love just doesn't overlook the things that have been done to us or others. Love many times points us towards the beauty of what God did for us. So when we forgive, we seek justice without vengeance but we still seek justice. Understanding that, that loving somebody doesn't always mean just putting them back into your life. Yes, part of forgiveness and grace and love is about a restoration of community, and we'll talk about that next week. But it doesn't mean that people who are cancerous and who constantly want to destroy your life, you just bring them back in. There is there's a time and a, and a place where you are waiting. I need to see if we can even trust you, and that may be years and years. But what we have to understand is there is a place of the difference of understanding contempt versus true forgiveness and true justice. And we don't look at people with contempt. We look at their actions with contempt. But the person themselves is someone that God is calling us to lovingly take to a place of justice. One, for the rest of the human community, for the perpetrator themselves, for the grace and the glory of God. And so that righteousness can actually be known. Forgiveness does not mean overlooking all the things that have been done. Forgiveness means that we can seek justice in a way that honors the justice of God. This is one of the reasons we come to communion every week. It's a reminder that the justice for our sins was taken upon Christ himself. Substitutionary atonement leads to the understanding of how we live our lives. This is why we say we talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. When we understand the gospel, the results of that filter into our lives and how we then begin to live. Every bit of it, every bit of it. And so today you're invited to take communion, break a cracker like Christ's body was broken for us, dip it in the wine of the grape juice as a reminder of the great grace and salvation that you've received from God himself. The mercy, the love that he has extended to you and have that maybe begin to melt your own heart So you can step to a place of forgiveness, even if you know there's a place that you have to work towards justice towards. Mm -hmm. If you need prayer, maybe you are in a situation, maybe you've been abused and you have this anger or this pain or maybe just a feeling of, I don't even know what to do, but you want someone to pray with you. And talk with you. Right across the way, there's going to be a couple people in the lounge. And they would love to talk to you and pray with you about it. We, we have a little room over in the trailer over there, so you don't have to be in the middle of the lounge. You can just say, hey, I'd like to pray with somebody, but I don't want to do it out here in front of everybody. You can go during the music. You can go after service. Um, but if you need prayer, please go and talk to them. Um, we are a church who gives because God has been so giving to us. That's why we don't pass a plate, but it's a response. Since that's why you have offering boxes on the side wall, You give online because God has been generous, so we become generous with our mercy and our love and our grace and all that He's given to us. I encourage you to grab some sermon notes. I'd also encourage you to read Dan Hollander's article that they wrote because I think it's really good on understanding what justice looks like in the midst of abuse. And I think it could inform, even if you've never been through that, it might help you to understand things a little bit better as well. So today, uh, I know, started off fun ended really heavy. It's like trivia, yay. Then it's like, oh, we're all crying. That's wonderful. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) But God is good. He really is. And for all the things that we do as a people that kind of destroy one another, he is still faithful in his grace towards us. So let's be those who live in that grace. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would remind us consistently and constantly of the grace that we have first received, that that would inform our lives and how we begin to interact with those around us. That what how we see the world and how we see others and how we see ourselves, how we see you, would start with the baseline narrative of the gospel. That we wouldn't simply see everybody else as the problem, but we would understand that we have been the problem as well. And yet you have stepped in to the places that we are and called us to yourself. And so this morning, I ask that you would grab a hold of our hearts in whatever way you need to, pull our focus back towards you, that in places where justice needs to take place, you would give us the strength to do that. You would surround us with the community that would give us the strength to be able to do that. And that you would be glorified even in the midst of the mess that we made of this world you created. And as we lift you up, and as we see who you are, that we would be instruments of redemption in each other's lives. that we would live in and trust in the truth that you have provided to us. And as I said, that you would be glorified. And even in the midst of pain and sorrow and hurt and justice, there would be that deep and abiding joy that comes from you. So have us live lives that honor you because we understand what you have first done in us. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So we'll drop the curtains and just take a couple moments during these couple songs and ask God to kind of begin to work in your heart. Maybe you are not someone who's ever really struggled with abuse. It's not happened to you, but maybe there's something where you hold somebody else in contempt in your own heart. In your own life, ask God to reveal that to you and what it would truly mean to set that contempt aside and then to seek out what justice would look like. Because, again, we don't want our anger to move into vengeance because vengeance is never going to bring about real justice. Vengeance is about us. Justice is about growing God's glory in the world seeing what the graciousness of who he is and what he has done truly means. So ask him to show you those places in your own heart where contempt is sitting, or maybe where there is abuse and you need to get help with that. You need to talk to somebody through that so that you can step into real and true life. Because the longer those things sit there, the longer those people will have control in your life. And God wants us to be a free people who love and worship Him. So ask God to reveal those things to you and then sing a couple songs, come and take communion and head out into the hurricane (laughs) in grace because God's love is like a hurricane towards us.
2: So as we go through the Forgive series, there's two aspects that I think we can gain much from And I would be my prayer And my hope for element One is the realization Of our own sinfulness If we don't grasp that um, I think it's really difficult To forgive others Without having a sense of I'm owed But when we understand Our own depravity Our own um, sinfulness That harms others Like we sometimes feel harmed um, It makes moving towards Forgiveness of another um, Challenging at best and more likely there's underlying issues of not really experiencing the grace of forgiveness towards another which means and this is the difficulty we have got to assess the damage done where i've been hurt where i've been wronged what it's costing me and some costs don't go away abuse leaves residue that may last a lifetime and so that's a cost that the one sinned against has to carry But they don't carry it alone we have a Savior we have Jesus who paid for that sin and that debt as well as and then is able to walk with us in our shouldering that load that debt of another and then without making those assessments those understandings I don't think we can really forgive Uh, we have to understand what it's costing us and then being able to in grace and in the realization how um, God has done this for me, um, and He's also He's paid what I'm owed, if there is such a thing. But He uh, He's paid what harm I've endured or, or been um, uh, that I've suffered, and therefore makes a way for me to heal as well.